At Old Mutual Wealth Private Client Securities, we specialize in bespoke investment management for high net worth individuals, trusts, and companies. Our private client portfolio managers craft and manage tailored share portfolios, investing directly into high-quality companies both locally and globally. We partner with you and your financial planner to ensure that you achieve your financial goals with peace of mind. Climate change poses a myriad of risks to us humans. Those risks include food insecurity, scarcity of water, on the other end flooding, infectious diseases, heat, economic losses and displacement. Sure, there's a big topic to try and get our head around today. In fact, these impacts are so severe that the World Health Organization has classified climate change as the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. Speaking to us today to unpack this rather meaty subject, and it is a big topic, is Tasneem Samudin, who is a research analyst at Old Mutual Private Client Securities. Uh, Tasneem, big one to talk about today. First of all, welcome onto the podcast. Secondly, let's get straight into the path to net zero. Unpack what is net zero for us. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me today. Net zero, in very simple terms, is just that we have to offset whatever carbon emissions we put into the atmosphere. So it's about getting to a place where the carbon emissions that we emit is equal to the carbon emissions that we remove. So that, that's simply just what net zero means, is balancing those carbon emissions. Okay. And uh, I mean, there's all sorts of targets and there are all sorts of percentages and big numbers and figures and countries and all sorts of very different organizations that are all focusing on this and trying to achieve this. 124 countries, including us here in South Africa, have now pledged to achieve net zero emissions. Let's talk about net zero. It's by far not an easy task. In fact, it's like herding cats when we start to talk about this because everyone's got their own idea and everyone's got their own thing going on, haven't they? I think the difficulty with all of this is that no one has a plan that other countries can jump onto and say, you know what, we believe that that is the correct path. That is how we're going to get to net zero. We're all trying to figure out what technology mm. we can use, what is the quickest way to achieve it or the more efficient way, and how do we prepare populations? I mean, all our cultures are different. So culturally, we have a different approach to how we intend to get to net zero. So I think that's the difficulty in that we don't really have that level of collaboration that we need on a global scale uh, to get us mm. to net zero. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, just reading through this article and part of the pieces that you've popped onto this article, you talk about power generation as contributing 75% to all of the uh, the nonsense that's going into our, our climate and into our atmosphere. Uh, that f must be the low-hanging fruit and the major problem that everyone's trying to tackle. Let's start with that, first of all. What's going on there? You know, so it, it makes sense if we need to decrease our carbon emissions to start with the biggest culprit, and that's electricity. It's how we produce our electricity. Predominantly around the world, we use coal and other fossil fuels. I um, mean, South Africa, as you know, ESCOM is highly reliant on coal, and mm -hmm. that is the biggest emitter. So it makes sense then to go after that generation point, and that's why solar energy and wind energy is the current focus of all the climate change plans. Because if we can 
remove coal, at least we're addressing 75% of our emissions. You know, if we can get one thing right by 2050, it's let's build out a renewable energy grid. So let's invest in wind, let's invest in solar, uh, let's get our cars to not run on on fossil fuels as well, because that's like the second Mm. largest. Um, So it definitely is the low-hanging fruit. That doesn't mean it's the easiest. It's probably the most difficult. (laughs) No, I, yeah. I completely understand that. And, and also, uh, whilst it is the most difficult to try and sort out, uh, you know, big ship turning is going to take a lot longer than the, uh, the smaller ones. But I want to speak about this because this is a big one, is that there are dates being thrown around the year 2030 and then the year 2050 for net zero. Just talk us through that, because I suppose you have to start somewhere when you start to decide, well, by this date, uh, we are going to be net zero. But these... Uh, uh, these are really just a few years away, aren't they? If we're talking about energy transitions, 2050 and, well, 2030 is way too close, but 2050 even is a very ambitious target. And the reason the 2050 is there is that's the date the scientists has, have given us and said, if we don't achieve net zero by 2050, we're going to have very large climate catastrophes thereafter if we continue with this warming path that we're on. But based on what I've seen from previous energy transitions, and we've gone through energy transitions before, you know, we we had wood, we had coal, and we've we've had oil. But all of those transitions happened very slowly. And by slowly, I mean, you know, more than five decades. We're talking about hundreds of years to transition from one source to the next source. So trying to get from an oil or coal-based energy grid into a renewable energy grid, that is a significant task for the human population. But we're going about it a very different way now. But Mm. that doesn't mean that the timeline uh, is achievable. So we're looking at some very significant hurdles to get to the target that's been set. And some of the numbers that's thrown around is that we need to get at least about 60% of our energy grid to be uh, renewable energy over the next decade. Hmm. And that's like three times what it is today. I don't think people understand how, how really complex and how difficult it is to get to those targets just based on what we've achieved in the past um, and where we currently stand with our current technologies and, like I said, uh, the current level of cooperation globally. I mean, uh, I appreciate that you're you're being as positive as possible. You're giving us the facts here, but the, but the the truth of the matter is is that it's actually a really uh, a hard topic to try and grasp because there are so many variables. I want to talk about the resources that go into all of these renewable energy plants, etc., whether it be cars or whether it be electricity generation. I mean, these in turn need to be found, they need to be mined, they need to be repurposed into whatever they're going to be used in. Uh, that in itself is a, a massive undertaking. Let's just talk about that for a second. What's What's the chatter around the resources needed? We're essentially building a renewable energy grid from scratch, which means there's a lot of construction involved. I mean, the electricity grids that we have now were built decades ago, um, mostly before even some of our generations. So we can't fathom the amount of construction that that's going to be required. And as a result of that construction, we're going to need commodities to be mined by these mining companies. And mm. the, techno- the the resources that need to be mined is different to the commodities that we use to build our traditional power plants, our coal power plants. We're talking about lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, rare earth metals, 
These are typically metals that are, are not easy to mine and they're not found all around the world. They're found in specific locations in, in certain geographies. Mm. Um, and they, they're very essential to building out these grids. And the demand that is expected is significantly outstrips our current supply. So we need mining companies to actually go out and find additional sources. And that takes mm. a very, very, you, you can't really put a timeline on it. But on average, it takes about 16 years to go from exploitation to actually starting to mine uh, those minerals. And when I talk about the jump in demand versus uh, existing supply, I'm talking about quantums of about 40 times, 20 times. So we'd need 42 times the supply of lithium uh, in mm. the next decade to build out our solar plants and our wind plants. And the, mm. there isn't really anything we can substitute those metals with. Um, mm. You know, it's kind of like mm. using rhodium in a, in a car. You can't, even though the, the price is what it is, it's significantly uh, inflated, we have to use those, uh, those minerals. So I'd say that is one of the significant constraints with building out this grid, is that we know that we need these commodities, but the miners haven't started with the exploration activities. So we first have to go and find these commodities in the world, and then we actually need to start mining them. Uh, and by the time, so if we're looking at 16 years, that's already you know, beyond our 2030 target. Yep. Um, so yep. it, it just it, it makes these targets really um, difficult to achieve. Of course, um, I'm going to throw the word geopolitical into the, uh, the mix over here. Once a country does find itself in a position where it has lots of lithium, of course, then we have a, a whole other problem to negotiate with them and to start to get prices down, etc., etc. So uh, we haven't even dealt with those issues yet, have we? That is the other challenge with the commodities is that the, the supply that we have today of some of these commodities are in really, I'd say, challenging areas to conduct business in. So, for example, the earth metals, which is very pivotal in, in renewable energy plant construction, that's predominantly found in China. Uh, we have a little bit of Australia, but really the quality supply is sitting in China. So they, they control the supply of that commodity. If we're looking at cobalt, also another critical mineral that's sitting in the DRC, which is also another area that miners find difficult to do to do business in. And of course, with the world moving the way it has over the past couple of years, uh, the tensions between the US and China, you know, we've we've kind of been moving away from globalization in that everyone has been turning to themselves, you know, support local. So with all that mm. sentiment, it, it makes it mm. very difficult to then go to a country like China and say, you know what, the world needs your re-earth metals and you have to make that supply available to us. That is not a conversation mm. that I think our politicians or even the United Nations, that's not a conversation that they are at a stage where they can actually go in and say, um, we're making this a global mm. you know, commodity that, that everyone will have access to. China will control that supply. And if they yep. decide that they want to place tariffs on it or they decide that they want to limit who they're going to sell to and what quantities, that puts the rest of our transition at, um, at risk. And obviously they're going to supply themselves first, <laughs> which, we, which we've seen with the vaccines as well already. So no, there's yeah. significant geopolitical risk as well. But that kind of comes second to first, let's find the supply. <laughs> right. I mean, based on all of this this chatter, whether it's geopolitical or whether it's just who has the resources or, or how we're going to reach all these deadlines, etc. 
the bottom line is the deadline is, is quite ambitious to reach this net zero target by 2050, isn't it? It is an ambitious target. And like I said, the target comes from the scientists, really. Um, that's saying after 2050, we're going to have some big problems. And that is what the governments are basing their targets on. So they've said, you know, we're going to achieve net zero by 2050, but there are no concrete plans in place. Uh, the commodities is one that they're hoping the miners will kind of sort out. They're hoping that demand is going to drive additional supply. So the private sector might might look after uh, that issue for them. But mm. there's the other issue that the world currently runs on fossil fuels. Economies are highly dependent. I mean, South Africa is one with ESCOM. We depend on coal for our electricity, but not electricity mm. only. We export coal. We have, I think, 90,000 miners that are dependent on income from coal mining. And we don't have plans uh, for what happens with those miners once we start to transition to reducing the emissions. Uh, so if, if the EU decides that they're going to put carbon tariffs from 2030, that puts us at a significant disadvantage. So while governments have said we are going to achieve net zero by 2050 and sign their names to that, to the Paris Climate Accord, no one actually has a plan of how we're going to achieve that. Yeah, as you said right up front, the, you know, it's like herding cats. Everyone's got a different plan and everyone's working or for a different hymn sheet, if you will. Uh, let's let's just switch gear here, Tasneem. I'm interested to talk about the opportunities rather than the, the doom and gloom about this, because whilst there is a lot of hurdles along the way, there are also a lot of opportunities. Funding, for one, would be uh, the low-hanging fruit when it comes to investment and opportunities there. Let's talk about that funding and and what opportunities lie in that in that sort of spectrum of this debate. Yeah, so there's a lot of capital being thrown at this issue, and, and rightly so, both from the private and public sector. We all know that we have to support this transition. We have to support companies in trying to reduce their emissions, but we also have to provide the capital to build these power plants from scratch. So the most yeah. capital is going into actually building out the solar and wind plants, procuring land for these plants. But there's an, an entire supply chain and value chain that has to be built up around that. So like I said, it's like we we are building an electrical grid basically from scratch. And wouldn't you have loved to have been around generations ago when we built out our current electrical grid? Mm. And there's a mm. there's significant opportunity there. So we're talking about building out a solar plant, building the components for it, but also mining the commodities and then setting up the actual power plant who's going to operate those plants. There's a significant amount of software investment that has to go into that to build out that grid. So there's a lot of money being thrown into this industry as it should, um, but that also comes with its own, uh, I think, unique set of risks in that it's mm. predominantly in these in this renewable energy space. It's predominantly new companies. Yep. You know, they've they've seen the opportunity, and they've started to operate you know, on the basis that this is going to be a significant growth um, area going forward. But some of these companies, they are not profitable. They're still small or they're medium. They've been given capital on the basis that they will generate income in the future. So it's not an investment space for everyone. You know, it is it is a very speculative space at this stage, just given the maturity of the sector or the lack of mm. maturity uh, would be a better way of describing it. So while there is high opportunity, risk. it's it is a high risk. 
uh, high risk. As yeah, well. but but then again, you know, I mean, I'm I'm sorry to pick on on the big guy, but Tesla obviously high risk, high reward. If you just look at their their performance over the past few years, uh, you'll see that although it might have been volatile, it's um, it's done incredibly well, and that speaks exactly to what you're saying about uh, alternative energy. Yeah, Tesla has been one of I think the the more common or the, the more well-known beneficiaries of this renewable energy mm-hmm. theme mm-hmm. and that the companies that are there in that moment, they obviously benefit from lack of competition because they've been around for the, the longest time. They've been operating in this space and speaking to this theme. But what happens from this point on is that now competitors start coming online. And the business model you've been running over the past 10 years is not the one you're going to see over the next 10 years. Because now you have mm. these, the significant competition coming in. And that's what makes the space exciting in that yeah. there is a lot of opportunity. Um, but you have to be very careful about who you're placing your bet on, so to speak. Because uh, it is in a speculative space and someone can still come up with a technology tomorrow. And you know that mm. is better than a Tesla. We, we don't know. Mm. Um, and neither mm. does Tesla. But Tesla... Um, they de- they deserve to reap the benefits of the model that they've been running over the years and for encouraging other manufacturers um, to do the same. All right. Well, we're now looking into the uh, the glass ball of the future and s- trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Uh, needless to say, it's an exciting space to keep an eye on from an investment point of view. Uh, and a very troublesome one when it comes to climate change and all of the problems that go with it. So uh, thanks for that very interesting chat. I I do believe there are so many different threads which we could unpick and go down here. Uh, But we leave it there, Tasneem Samudi, in the chat around net zero. Uh, Research analyst for Old Mutual Private Client Securities. Thanks for your time today, Tasneem. Thank you for an interesting conversation. Uh, I do hope we achieve Net zero by 2050, even though I've, I've painted a pretty bleak picture. Um, but let's be yes. optimistic and let's hope for the best. <laughs> Indeed, Tasneem, thank you so much. Don't forget that Old Mutual Wealth is an elite service offering brought to you by several licensed FSPs in the Old Mutual Group. At Old Mutual Wealth Private Client Securities, we craft portfolios using a global and unbiased investment approach, allowing us to seek investment opportunities across asset classes, sectors and geographies. We believe that quality, valuation, diversification and time are the key drivers of superior long-term returns. As such, we invest in quality companies with a long-term track record of delivering sustainable earnings growth. Our investment philosophy is supported by a disciplined and robust investment process and is backed by a highly experienced and talented team.